Thank you so much. It is wonderful to get to be with you today. I do know a couple, maybe a few of you from Pill or Lori being one of them, who I have loved having class with. And it's been great to meet some more of you this morning. It's also great and wonderful that your pastor has a sabbatical. I am sure that is much needed. Uh, before we get going, I understand Bibles will be passed out if you want one. So please get one if you'd like a Bible as people pass them out or you go somewhere to get them. Um, I will put the text on the screen. I hope it's readable in the back, but you may also want a Bible to page through at a couple points. So the message this morning is from Psalms, and I love Psalms for a lot of reasons. I love the poetry, the imagery, the rhythms. I love the way Psalms connect us to God first and foremost, but also to the psalmists. I love the way Psalms provide a window into what life was like for the psalmist, for people who long before us were in and stayed in relationship with the Lord. Psalms show us some of what they did to do that. And I love psalms because they don't leave anything out. No emotion is too extreme, no experience unheard of. Psalms encompass all of life, the worst of the worst of pain and tragedy and all the things we don't want to go through but that God knows we will and the best of the best of the good things we get to experience. Psalms is for life when all is well and when life and for life when nothing is well. God knew we would need psalms. I have needed and need psalms. Psalms are instruction. They teach us to pray by ancient example. How to praise, how to give thanks, how to lament how to be dumbfounded and in awe of creation and redemption and everything God's done, how to be furious at injustice and hopeful for deliverance. I understand that a goal of the series you're in now as a church, moving this generation from culture to kingdom, is for everyone at Chapel Hill to flourish in relationship with the Lord as disciples of Jesus to become people who know Jesus so well and are so close with him that we care about what he cares about and we do what he wants us to do, serving each other here and carrying his love and redemption outside these walls. Psalms, I would submit, are food, drink, and shelter on this journey. We need psalms. We're looking at two psalms this morning. And they both help us think about something we may do more than anything else in our walk with the Lord, in our life of discipleship, and that is wait. We wait. That may sound strange. Wouldn't we say pray or worship or share the good news? Waiting's in the background of all these things all the time. We wait for God's guidance, his provision. We wait for his return. Every year we mark our wait for his return during Advent. Advent is all about the wait. We wait for God to bring an end to every injustice in the world and every arrogant and disloyal thing in us. Paraphrasing Revelation 21 verse 2. I'll put it on the screen. There it is. We wait for every tear to be wiped away, for death and mourning, and crying, and pain to be no more. We wait for all the former things to pass away. We wait for so many things, and waiting is hard. 
But waiting isn't inaction. Waiting's in the background of everything else we do. The Psalms we're reading this morning help us think about how to wait well. They're part of the Songs of the Ascents. The Songs of the Ascents, you may know, are a group of 15 psalms in Book 5 of the Psalter. Psalms 120 to 134. If you want to turn there, please do. Feel free to page through these psalms as I talk a little bit about them. Psalms 120 to 134. We can't say for sure, but we think people may have sung the songs of the ascents as they traveled to Jerusalem for the three big pilgrimage festivals that were celebrated in ancient Israel. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Each of these celebrates something God had done or continued to do for his people. Passover celebrates when he delivered the people from Egypt in the Exodus. Pentecost celebrates harvest and God's ongoing provision of what his people need. The Feast of Booths celebrates how he led the people through 40 years of wilderness wandering. Like communion for us today and gathering every Sunday like we do, these festivals are community remembrances. They would have been massive events. Three times a year, people traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember together what God had done and continued to do for them. These festivals were a lifeline for the people, like communion and gathering every Sunday and maybe more during the week are for us. These are some of the things God's given to help us stay close with him and with each other. We think these psalms are called the songs of the ascents because remember, Jerusalem's up in the hill country. To get to Jerusalem, you have to go up. You have to ascend the hills that surround it. So we could translate the titles of these psalms, Songs of the Trips Up to Jerusalem. The songs of the ascents we're reading this morning are Psalms 130 and 131. Please turn there if you have a Bible, and I'll put them on the screen. Psalms 130 and 131. Two things tell us these psalms are a pair that we should read together. One is they share a line. This one, highlighted on the screen, the first line in verse 7 of Psalm 130 and verse 3 of Psalm 131. The other thing that tells us these psalms are a pair will be clear later. Now, looking at this shared line, your Bible may say, Israel, hope in the Lord, or something like that. Or it may say, Israel, wait for the Lord, or something like this. Why the different translations, hope and wait? Hebrew doesn't actually have a separate word for hope. To wait in Hebrew is to hope. So these words in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 130 could also all be translated wait. Translations vary when they translate these words hope and wait. Both words are good as translations because hoping is part of waiting. But to help us get in a Hebrew mindset this morning, I'll make all these words on the screen wait. Now let's read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness, so you're held in awe. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. For his word I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, wait for the Lord. 
for with the Lord is steadfast love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all its sins. When the psalmist cries out in verse 1, he tells God where he is in the depths. The depths are the deepest part of the sea. There's a lot of sea imagery in the Bible, and a lot of it is in Psalms. Sea imagery is mythic in the Bible. The sea represents chaotic forces only God can keep in check, and that he easily does always keep in check. But waves crash over psalmists. Waters come up to their neck. In the spectrum of sea imagery, the depths are next level. Psalms gives feels-like descriptions, right? And we need this descriptive help in prayer. So when the psalmist tells God he's crying out from the depths, he's saying he's in the middle of something that is so hard and feels so terrible. He's not literally at the bottom of the deepest sea, but that's what he feels like. The psalmist doesn't explain what exactly is so terrible in the psalm. He doesn't go into any detail about what's going on, but he begs God to hear his pleas for mercy in verse 2. And he describes God's mercy in verses 3 and 4. He includes himself in the everyone who wouldn't be able to stand if God kept a record of sins. The depths the psalmist is in must be what it feels like to wait for forgiveness. If we're human, we know this feeling. We know what it feels like to hurt someone, even unintentionally, and then have to wait for them to forgive us. We might also expect our experience of waiting for forgiveness from God to be different from the psalmist's, on an intellectual level at least, right? Intellectually, we know forgiveness is immediate when we ask for it because we know that what Jesus did on the cross was once for all. That said, feeling forgiven can take more time. May we always know how completely and immediately God forgives when we ask because he's looking at his son at that point, not us. Looking at the psalm, see that the psalmist also, the psalmist also expects forgiveness without question from God. Not through Jesus, but we can marvel at the consistency of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The psalmist says three things are with God in the psalm. With God is forgiveness in verse 4 and steadfast love and full redemption in verse 7. God has always been forgiving and loving and has always redeemed his people. He does this once for all in Jesus, but this is who he's always been and what he's always done, and the psalmist knows this. This is why God is held in awe, the psalmist says in verse 4. Your Bibles may say revered or feared, and this is why the psalmist urges all Israel to wait for the Lord with him in verse 7. The psalmist describes his own waiting in verses 5 and 6. Knowing everything he knows about God, that he's forgiving, loving, that he redeems, the psalmist waits, he says. My soul waits, verse 5, for his word I wait. And verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. That is such an image. Picture watchmen. Imagine a walled city somewhere in ancient Israel and watchmen standing at their posts, positioned all along the wall, standing there all night, scanning the landscape by starlight and moonlight, 
physically aching for the lightning of the sky, for the sun, for their watch to be over. The psalmist says he waits for the Lord more than that, more than aching but vigilant watchmen. Knowing everything he knows about the Lord, that with him is forgiveness, steadfast love, and full redemption, how else could he wait for the Lord, feeling like he feels buried in the deepest part of the deepest sea? We have to ask, is this how we wait for the Lord? Maybe when I feel the greatest need, when I feel I've done wrong, and I long to feel completely forgiven, even though I know I'm forgiven. Looking at these two psalms together, I think they invite us to think more broadly about what it means to wait for the Lord as well. So for his work in an area of our life, for something to be made right in the world, and of course, for his return. There are times when I'm reading the news and might feel more urgency than watchmen waiting for morning. When I'm like, Lord, please come and just stop all this, right? There are other times when I'm struck by something in scripture, just bowled over by who God is and what he's done. And again, I'm like, please come. And again, make everything the way it should be. Probably more often, though, and sadly, my weight is too far in the background of whatever else I'm doing. The tyranny of the urgent presses. I have 18 things to do in the next two hours, and they're all up to me. So I'm too busy or distracted or too tired to be so vigilant and to nurture my expectation, to even think about the fact that my wait for the Lord is always going on in the background of everything else I do. Pushing that weight further into the background of everything else are also other things we wait for, right? Other things we want and hope for, many that are so good, needful even and that we should be so excited about. Family, friendship, health, work, rest, homes to rest in, sustainable incomes, savings, safety for our kids and everyone we love, peace and well-being everywhere in the world. It's hard not to wait more than watchmen for the morning while we work for these things. And may we work as hard at them, as hard for them as God wants us to. No more, no less. May we get the things we really need, and may we be okay when things we really want don't come, because that is a hard part of life. And always, more than for anything else, may our wait for the Lord be our greatest wait. The psalmist urges all Israel to wait with him in verse 7 of Psalm 130, and again in verse 3 of Psalm 131. We're included in this exhortation. Let's turn to Psalm 131. Remember this line that connects the psalms. The other thing connecting them is the central image in each one. The image in Psalm 131 in the translation on the screen will be slightly different uh, from what you read in your Bible. I'll explain that, but first let's read Psalm 131. Lord, my heart isn't lifted up. My eyes aren't raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Rather, I've calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child on its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul on me. Israel, wait for the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Such a short psalm and so rich. 
the images connecting these psalms are the watchman and the weaned child. Specifically, the psalmist says his soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning in Psalm 130. And he likens his soul to a weaned child on its mother's lap in Psalm 131. So he uses both images to say something about his soul. He uses the phrase, my soul, twice in both these psalms. Before unpacking Psalm 131 in the child image, let's think about the soul. Specifically, the idea of the soul in the Hebrew Bible and how we should understand it in these psalms. Soul in the Hebrew Bible, which for sure colors the New Testament, is really different from the soul in Greek thought. You may know this. In case anyone doesn't, I'd like to take a little time to explain. So my soul. In Greek thinking, the soul is the immaterial or non-physical part of a person. The body is the material part, the physical. Some Greek thinkers even taught that the body was bad, that the body, the physical, was something to escape. Soul, as we see it in English translations of the Hebrew Bible, is basically the opposite of this. The Hebrew word we translate soul is rooted in physical need. It starts out completely physical and then is used to describe more. It eventually describes the self, which is what we see in Psalms 130 and 131. And this idea is what corresponds to the soul in Greek thought. Self in the Hebrew Bible, soul in Greek thought. The Hebrew word behind this word is the word nephesh. So a little Hebrew this morning. A literal translation of nephesh, believe it or not, see how physical this is, is throat. So physical. So my soul is my nephesh, which is literally my throat, which sounds so strange. My nephesh is a metonymy, a kind of figurative use of language. And I realize that this may now feel a little more like class than a sermon, but just a few more minutes of this, there's a really good reason to go through it. We need to know more about metonymy, a figurative, not a literal use of language. Metonymy is how nephesh, or throat, comes to mean self in Hebrew, which corresponds to what we think of as a soul. So in metonymy, we name one thing to refer to something related to it. And in many metonymies, like the nephesh metonymies in the Hebrew Bible, we name part of something to refer to the whole it's a part of. So think of when we say, two heads are better than one. We don't mean two literal heads separated from bodies are better than one literal head separated from a body. We mean two whole thinking people are better than one whole thinking person. Right? This is metonymy. We name a part of the two people their heads to refer to the whole people. Now what's really important in metonymy, and this is the reason for going through this, is that when we use metonymies, we highlight something about the thing we're describing. So in metonymy, in this metonymy, naming the head highlights the ability people have to think. Metonymy always highlights something about the thing it refers to. And see the connections here. We think with our brains. Brains are in our heads. Two heads, two thinking people. So two heads are better than one highlights the capacity people have to think. Now, nefesh. The literal meaning of nefesh we now know is throat. We see this in Isaiah. Sheol has enlarged its nefesh or its throat and opened its mouth. The closest relation to this literal meaning in the Hebrew Bible is the metonymy when nefesh is used to mean 
appetite, which we see in Proverbs. People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his nefesh or his appetite, right, when he's hungry. We don't say this in English, but if I say my throat is starving, you know what I mean, right? Metonymy. Now, building on the idea of appetite, nefesh is used as a metonymy to refer to desire more broadly, which we see in Jeremiah. Jeremiah rebukes people for taking back servants after having set them free according to their desire, which Jeremiah calls their nefesh. With this word, he's describing what the servants wanted. Nefesh is also used as a metonymy to refer to life itself, so the living thing in us that needs all the things we put down our throats, right, to stay alive, food, water, air. We see this in Genesis, after the flood, where God tells people never to eat flesh with the nefesh in it, that is, the living part of an animal in this case. So a super interesting word. Finally, nefesh is frequently used to refer to the whole person. Exodus 12:15 says that anyone who eats what's leavened as they're fleeing Egypt, that nefesh, meaning that whole person, will be cut off from Israel. So looking at these examples, which I know we're a bit to go through, but I want us to see if we always highlight something about what we refer to when we use metonymies, what do biblical writers highlight about a person when they call them a nefesh? What do we see looking on the screen? As a metonymy, the nefesh is the part of the person that needs, the part that hungers, the part that wants, the part that needs stuff to live. So nefesh as person highlights the fact that as people, we are shaped in fundamental ways by what we need. To be human is to need. So when the psalmist refers to my soul, He's saying, I need things. I am a bundle of need. With this in mind, let's look more closely at Psalm 131. The image of the soul is so different in this psalm from watchmen waiting for morning in Psalm 130. But these images connect, and they connect the psalms. When you think of a weaned child on its mother's lap, what do you picture? I picture a child who isn't feeling very needy. They're not waiting for food. They're not begging to be picked up. They've already gotten on the lap. They're where they want to be, happy to be curled up on mom. So how do these images relate, the watchman and the weaned child? Does something happen between the psalms? Are we supposed to think the Lord came to the psalmist after Psalm 130, and now in Psalm 131, the psalmist is content? I don't think so. I don't think these psalms are before and after pictures. Look at verse 1 in Psalm 131. In three different ways, the psalmist says he knows his limits in this verse. He says his heart, which in Hebrew is heart as we think of it, plus mind as we think of it. So the psalmist says his heart, mind, isn't lifted up. His eyes aren't raised too high. He's describing himself as humble right? Now the rest of the verse is telling. Look at these phrases in particular, things too great and too marvelous for me. In other psalms and other books in the Old Testament, the words in these phrases describe only miraculous things God does and has done. 
So we could paraphrase verse 1 saying, Lord, I'm not you, and I know it. I know it's not all up to me. The psalmist is describing himself as humble, but more specifically, he's acknowledging that as a human, I'm aware of how little I know and can do in comparison to you, God. I know how much I need you. Then in Psalm 131, there's a kind of thought gap after verse 1. In this gap is everything the psalmist knows and believes about the Lord. We can think of Psalm 130. He knows God's forgiving, loving, that he redeems. He knows God knows what he needs and how to provide it. I think we need to see all that knowledge in the space between verses 1 and 2. Because only with all that knowledge would the psalmist then say in verse 2, knowing what he knows about the Lord, rather than think, I can do what you can do, know what you know, or provide all I need for myself, that it's all up to me, rather than that, I've calmed and quieted my soul. I've calmed and quieted the needing, wanting thing in me that needs and wants so many things. The next two lines on the screen will be just a little different from the Bible you may have. Most translations have something like the ESV, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's interesting how translations happen. I don't know all the reasons for everything, but the most straightforward reading of the Hebrew here is like a weaned child on its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul on me. In this image, the psalmist is the mother, holding his nephesh like a mother would hold a weaned child. This is soul care, right? Nephesh care. How do we hold our neediness like this? How do we calm and quiet our needs so they're content? Content needs are an oxymoron, but that's what this picture is. The psalmist, us, holding our souls. How do we do this? The psalmist shows us the first and the longest steps to take to calm and quiet our souls, the needy thing in us. The first step is in verse 1. Step 1 is remembering everything we don't know, everything that isn't up to us, everything we can't control, everything we know only God can do. And notice this first step isn't just remembering on our own. Step one is telling God we remember our limitations and his unlimitations. This step has to be taken in conversation with God. We can't do everything ourselves, and we don't get all the answers we want. We get him. And telling him we know this is important. This is how the Psalms instruct us. They help us know what we can say to God and what we need to say to God. So this is step one. Everything isn't up to us. We don't get all the answers. We get him. And we need to tell him we know that. Then the longest step we take in calming and quieting our souls, all our neediness, is in verse 3. In the line shared with Psalm 130. But here with an added exclamation in words, from this time forth and forevermore, this ends the psalm pair. The longest step is the wait. To put, a, to put a finer point on this, we should say the longest step is that we get good at waiting. How does God want us to wait for him? 
Psalms 130 and 131 give two really different pictures of waiting. The strenuous waiting of watchmen and the contented waiting of a weaned child curled up on its mom who doesn't seem outwardly to be waiting for anything. How do these images relate? I don't think we're meant to interpret them in sequence with each other as if the watchmen are the strenuous toiling before image and the weaned child is the idyllic resolved after image as if we're supposed to make our way from watchman to weaned child, from strenuously waiting to contentedly waiting. I think we're supposed to figure out how to wait like both these images at the same time. The watchman or the more than watchman waiting is an image of how eagerly God wants us to wait for him. And the weaned child is an image of how deeply he wants us to trust that he'll come that he knows how to take care of what we need. I think God wants us to wait for him more than watchmen for the morning and like weaned children at the same time. Easier said than done, of course. So we need to have all the kindness for ourselves when we flounder at this. In a story I watched recently, a woman is giving advice to a little girl who's going through an adoption. They had just a little time together, so the woman is rattling off one thing after another. And one of the things she says really struck me, and we may need to hear it this morning if our waiting game isn't all it could be. She said to this little girl, only ever talk to yourself the way you would to a friend you love. That is some good nefesh care, good soul care, right? When we have to give our souls a talking to, which we inevitably do, May we only speak to them like we would to a friend we love. To wrap up, so many things we do in community are designed to help us wait the way God wants us to. We need each other so much. And we need what we do together every week, both to stir up and strengthen our desire and longing for the Lord, and also to remind us that he, not we, has everything in hand. That he's not worried even when life feels like he should be. Two things in the text make me emphasize our need for each other. First, the psalmist does start in both Psalm 130 and 131 speaking to God alone. It's just him and God. So much happens in our times with God alone. We need that. But note that in both psalms, the psalmist also turns and calls the community to join him. Israel, everyone, all of us, wait for the Lord. So ultimately, we wait together. And then the second thing in the text is remember we're in the songs of the ascents. And if we're right about these songs, then people sang Psalms 130 and 131 as a community, as they made their way to Jerusalem to gather together and celebrate and remember in an even larger community all God had done and all he continued to do. To flourish in our walk with, our, with the Lord, we need each other to grow as disciples who care about what he cares about and do what he calls us to do in and outside these walls. We need to be close with him and close with each other. I said at the beginning, and will say again, psalms are food, drink, and shelter in this journey of growing closer to God and to each other, of becoming and doing who and what the Lord wants and asks of us. May we find the help we need from psalms when we go to them. So now I would like to invite the worship team back up here with me, and I will pray for us as they come up and we close.
Dear God, we wait for you with such hope and expectation, with all the trust you give. Please give each of us what we need to do what you want us to do and be who you want us to be. Please keep forgiving us when we're not these things and when we don't wait for you the way you want us to. Please keep lifting our heads and getting us back on the path you have for us. We know you have us in hand, and we love you. Amen.